Listener discretion advised for this particular episode as Tom and I will be discussing somewhat thoroughly some intense scenes of sexual assault, violence, both physical and sexual against women, and rape. Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book, all right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized, and I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode number 61, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo by Stay Larson. She's one of the best investigators I have. But she's different. In what way? In every way. Something wrong with the report? Anything you chose not to disclose. He's clean, in my opinion. He's honest. Her credibility isn't dead yet. Mine is. He's had a long-standing sexual relationship with his co-editor of the magazine. Sometimes he pleasures her. Not often enough, in my opinion. No, you're right not to include that. I need your help. You come stay on the island. A way of avoiding all those people you might want to avoid right now. You will be investigating thieves, misers, bullies, the most detestable collection of people that you will ever meet, my family. This is Harriet. Someone in the family murdered Harriet, and for the past 40 years has been trying to drive me insane. Those are from her, and the rest from her killer. Adapt to four foster homes. Arrested twice for intoxication, twice for assault. How many partners have you had in the last month? And how many of those were men? I should have control of my money. And you will, once you learn to be sociable. Why don't we start with me? You know what to do. I can't find something you've been unable to find in 40 years. You don't know that. You have a very keen investigative mind. You were here that day. A terrible day. Searching, not finding. I'd never found a body. Was it spontaneous? Was it calculated? Did she know something? Someone wished she didn't. The last time I reported on something without being absolutely sure, I lost my life savings. I need a research assistant. I know an excellent one. She did the background check on you. The what? You don't think we could hire just anyone for something like this? It's Mikhail Blomqvist. May I come in? We need to talk. Hey, hey, who do you think you are? Put some clothes on. Get rid of your girlfriend. Can I call you Elizabeth? I want you to help me catch a killer of women. I've got absolutely no idea how they're connected to the death of a 16-year-old girl. Don't you need to look over these? I got it. It's better to look at what I am about to show you on an empty stomach. What are you doing? Reading your notes. They're encrypted. Please. Rape, torture, fire, animals, religion. Am I missing anything? The names. I'm 
Everybody knows why you're here. Someone killed her. Someone on the island that day. If a woman approaches any beast and dies with it, you shall kill the woman and the beast. These people are insane. Soon you will know us all. Only too well. With my apologies. Welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is a book club where each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature that we have both read and one of us leads that discussion and we determine whether it's worthy of its reputation, whether that reputation is positive or negative, and whether that book is in fact required reading. So even though Tom and I have no romantic relationship between us, I think that we could potentially be uh, Mikhail and Elizabeth. So the Mikhail to Mm. my Elizabeth, he is with me here today. It's Tom. Welcome. Hi, how are you? I'm amazed (laughs) you got got through the entire intro without breaking. That's good. I know. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I was thinking once I I started, like, wow, we're really doing this. We're doing this book. Right there at the surface, I heard it. You just you repressed it, <laughs> finished professionally. Thank really you. Good. Yeah, it was it was. It's a bit surreal, I think, doing this book. Yeah, and I, I guess I'm preparing myself for some of the the heavy topics we're going to be discussing. So I guess I was kind of starting to smile in advance of that. But <laughs> yeah, so we this is our December episode, and I thought, well. You know, it's a pretty white and snowy landscape in Sweden, so it fits somewhat. And and hopefully you liked it a bit better than Ethan Frome, which I think was my last holiday pick. I think it was, yeah. <laughs> which I didn't, which I didn't hate. I, I I I enjoyed it more than I had when I was fifteen. Oh, that's good so. to hear. That is good to hear. Yeah, if I remember our discussion of Ethan Frome correctly. Yes. And I mean, of course, you made all the all the jokes that were <laughs> wherever they were supposed to be. I recently actually got the audiobook form of the Smash Up, which somebody I'm not sure if it was Robert or somebody else recommended, which was like uh-huh. a modern retelling of it. So I'm looking forward to listening to that. But currently, on my walks and my runs, I'm listening to I'm gonna say Come From Away, but that's the Broadway version of The Day the World Came to Town, which was. Yes. I knew of it peripherally because of Come From Away, but more so because you had mentioned it in passing from your 9-11 mm-hmm. limited series, which I thought was really good. So so that's been fun to, to listen to that. Cool. Yeah, I am just... Yeah. You know, what are you doing? Teacher. I am teacher tired. That's what I am right now. <laughs> teacher tired, oh, yeah. Very, yeah. It's, it's, been uh, a, it's been a year, so... Yeah. But yeah, just making through. Actually, I'm I'm working on the Fallen Walls Open Curtains episodes I've got for November, December right now as we're recording this. So hopefully I can get everything I have scheduled out for the rest of the year and then work on the 2022 stuff. Yeah, man. We're both just podcast, podcast busy. Dear readers, yeah. you know, starting to come out. Yeah, it's crazy, crazy. But we always come back to required reading, of course. That is our staple. Me too. Me too. <laughs> 
So, woo, okay, girl with the dragon tattoo. This was actually <laughs> mentioned in our previous episode, the special, where we asked, you know, should we protect kids, you know, and what they're reading or censor it. And I had mentioned a little side story of, of one of my freshmen at the time was reading this. And I didn't stop her from reading it, but I did check in with her. So there's a good mm -hmm. reason for why I was checking in with her. But what's your history with this book before we get into the history of the, the book itself and the author and everything? Yeah. This is actually my first time reading the book. I'd heard of the book back when it came out, or, or at least when it was started getting really, really popular over in this country. Because Amanda read it, and then she read the other two in the trilogy. Um, the Girl Who Played With Fire and The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, I believe yep. it's called. And I thought we still had them, but I think we loaned them to somebody and never got them back. Because I was like, where are they? So, yeah, I mean, we've purged so many books over the years and gotten stuff here and there. But my school library had a copy, so I checked it out there. But I do remember this being, like, these being huge bestsellers. I remember seeing a lot of buzz about the Swedish films with Numi Elizabeth Shaw. <laughs> yeah, yeah, from, yeah, from Numi Rapace. Rapace. And then I do remember that the Fincher version with Rudy Mara as um, Elizabeth coming out, but I don't know. I don't think it did very well from what I understand. Um, so, yeah, but this is my first time ever actually reading the book. It was one of those things where I think I might have always meant to it, I think I always said, oh, yeah, I'll read that one day. And it just I never got around to it. So here we are. Here we are, indeed. Yeah, I don't I'm kind of scratching my head how I even got it or came upon it. I'm mm -hmm. usually behind trends when they you know, if something's really popular, I usually only find out about it maybe the next year or like a good. Well, now with Goodreads where they do like the year in review and, and I kind of go through and see what they have to offer and see if anything is interesting but part of me thinks it may have been a gift mm -hmm. because you know some of my friends know that i'm a, a big reader and so maybe my friend i feel like it was christine but i feel like maybe she had known that this was popular and sent it to me and everything because i remember i feel like i watched the first swedish film with her when i went to go visit so this is my second read through the first one i remember <laughs> Remember being, I don't know, scar. I was traumatized. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, I still read through it all, but I think that was like the first time I had read something so graphic and specifically um, sexual assault and rape. I, I, I just tend not to read those things. Yeah, me too. This was happening. And I'm, you know, spoiler, I'm fully on board and, and support Lisbeth. So I really wanted to see how does she overcome this and, you know, what does what happens in the end. But the mystery is so enticing and really intriguing mm -hmm. that I just kind of tried to push through the really difficult moments to, to to make it to the end. So it's it's a worthwhile journey. But it's hard to get there yeah. towards the end. I've seen all three Swedish films mm -hmm. with Numi Rapace. I have seen the the Fincher. I saw that in the theater, and I was like preparing myself for what was about to happen. And then the recent one, Claire Foy. Yeah, the thank you. I knew it was an F. from the crown. Um, who, yes, from the crown is the new or was the new. I don't think that was successful either. That wasn't the best. So I've seen all of them. 
And yeah, so here we are wanting to discuss this. And this is something, sexual assault and rape in media and any form of media is something that's been on my mind, as mm -hmm. you know, Tom, for the past couple of years. And so I think this will be a really interesting discussion to have of, you know, what would this book be like without that and how how it's presented here? Is it, you know, respectful? That's kind of like a weird thing to ask, but, you know, things like that. So it was interesting now to read it years later, you know, probably a decade or more, being more mature mm -hmm. and having a better sense of, I don't know, how characters should be treated and uh, female <laughs> issues and things like that and feminism and, and the Me Too movement, you know, all these things and, and context has, has changed my reading, so. It was very interesting to read it this time around. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this there, there are definitely aspects of this that are of its time. I guess we'll get into that a little bit more um, yeah. as far as what he, you know, just I guess maybe the way the some of the some of the characters are written and stuff. So yeah, we can get into that when we get into our uh, discussion. Absolutely. So I'm going to talk about Larson a bit here, and I did go on stieglarson.com, whether that's reliable or not. And then I do have a couple things uh, from Wikipedia as well. And there's a well-known story that I think is really interesting that I knew of for a long, long time. And I feel like it, it, it sort of points to what... <laughs> The intention of the novel, if the story is correct, but it could also be a Phil Collins, uh, I can feel it in the air tonight kind of story, too. We don't know if it's true or not. Okay, so first of all, uh, Sieg Larsson was born in, uh-oh, Vasterbotten in northern Sweden in 54, 1954. At the time of his birth, his parents were too young and too poor to keep him, so he was raised by his grandparents in a small village in the north of Sweden. Sieg's grandfather, Severin Bostrom became the male role model for the young Stieg. He was, his grandfather, was strongly anti-fascist, and during the Second World War, he was imprisoned in the work camp in Storsign for his anti-Nazi opinions. Had he been Danish, he would no doubt have been placed in a German concentration camp. The fate of his grandfather deeply affected and shaped Stieg's character. He wanted to protect equal rights and fight for democracy and freedom of speech in order to prevent history and what happened to his grandfather from repeating itself. When Larson was nine years old, his grandfather died and he moved to live with his parents and his younger brother. He was given a typewriter for his 12th birthday and he spent most nights of his youth staying up writing, keeping his family awake with the drumming sound. At 18 years of age, he met Eva Gabrielson at an anti-Vietnam War meeting in Umea. Eva was to become his lifelong companion. With some short exceptions, mainly due to the fact that Larson was sometimes too obsessed with his work, they lived together until Larson's death on the 9th of November in 2004. After his military service, Larson traveled to Africa and has been described as an early backpacker. He rarely had enough money on his travels, and in an interview in 2006 with Nora Vosterbotten, his father describes how he had to work as a dishwasher and sell his clothes to afford a ticket home from Algeria. Larson was also interested in science fiction. Among other things, he was a chairman of the Scandinavian Science Fiction Society and published two magazines. 
During the last 15 years of his life, he and his life companion, Eva, lived under constant threat from right-wing violence. And I just want to pause here that this biography and learning these pieces of Larson's life reminds me a great deal of when we were covering The Sun is Also a Star because we saw that that author's life also was mirrored in her work as well. So pieces of his life certainly do pop up, I think, in the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo series. Like, I can already see him being Mikhail and uh, Eva being Erica Bergson, that kind of thing. Uh, okay. When a labor union leader was murdered in his home by neo-Nazis in 1999, the police discovered photos of and information about the couple in the murderer's apartment. So it was not without reason that the couple took precautionary measures. They were never seen together outside the house. They moved mirrors in the hall, and they always kept the blinds down. Those are just a few examples Larson was an expert in the area and wrote a book of instructions on how journalists should respond to threats for the Swedish Union of Journalists. This situation created a contrast between Larson's work at Expo and his nighttime novel writing. He regarded his writing of detective novels as relaxing, <laughs> keeping track of loose ends, characters, and made-up conspiracies posed no problem since it was, after all, fiction, and no one would threaten either Eva or himself because of it. So, a bit of irony there. Larson actually died of a heart attack after climbing the stairs to work, as I said, on the 9th of November in 2004. He was 50, and according to ABC News, fast food and coffee featured heavily in his diet. Uh, he is interred at the Hogalid Church Cemetery in the district of Södermalm in Stockholm. So in May 2008, it was announced that a 1977 will found soon after Larson's death declared his wish to leave his assets to the EMEA branch of the Communist Workers League, now the Socialist Party. As the will was unwitnessed, it was not valid under Swedish law, with the result that all of Larson's estate, including future royalties from book sales went to his father and brother. His long-term partner, partner, Eva, who found the will, has no legal right to the inheritance, sparking controversy between his father and brother and her. Reportedly, this was actually pretty interesting, reportedly the couple never married because under Swedish law, couples entering into marriage were required to make their addresses at the time publicly available, so marrying would have created a security risk, which I completely understand about that. Okay, so novel-wise, Larson had originally planned a series of 10 books and had completed two and most of a third when he began looking for publishers. At the time of his death in 2004, only three had been completed, and although accepted for publication, none had yet been printed, and these were published posthumously as the Millennium Series. The first book in the series was published in Sweden as, I won't say it, but literally, Men Who Hate Women in 2005. And, of course, the English language market titled it The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. It was awarded the Glass Key Award as the best Nordic crime novel in 2005. Then his second novel, The Girl Who Played with Fire, received the best Swedish crime novel award in 2006. And the third, literally, The Castle in the Air, which was blown up and published in English as The Girl Who Kicked the Hornet's Nest, was published in 2009 and 2010. 
Larson left depending on it was United States in 2010. Larson left about three quarters of the fourth novel on a notebook computer now possessed by his partner. Synopses or manuscripts of the fifth and sixth in the series, which he intended to comprise an eventual total of ten books, may also exist. And his partner has stated in her book, There Are Things I Want You to Know About Stieg Larsson and Me, which came out in 2011, that she feels capable of finishing the book. In 2013, Swedish publisher Nordstedt's contacted, or contracted, David Lager, Lager, Lagerkrantz, I'm so sorry, a Swedish author and journalist to continue the Millennium series. He did not have access to the materials that Larson's partner possessed. They're, of course, still unpublished. The new book was published in 2015, That Which Doesn't Kill Us, a.k.a. The Girl in the Spider's Web. And then the fifth was published in 2017 and the sixth in 2019. Okay, we also have some films. Of course, we had three Swedish films, which came out in 2009. As Tom said, Numira Pace was Lisbeth Salander, and Michael Nyquist, uh, may he rest in peace, was Mikhail Blomquist. And I do, I do recommend those. I like them. I like them not only because they're Swedish, and I feel like there's something about authenticity there, because the novel was originally, you know, in Swedish, and it takes place in Sweden. But I feel like it's also more accurate to the source material. And then the American films, we have two of them. Of course, the 2011 Fincher one with Daniel Craig as Mikhail and Rooney Mara as Lisbeth. And I liked, I recently rewatched it and I like it more than I did the first time. I think it gets better each time I watch it, but it's, it's not as accurate if you're going to be one of those people. And then The Girl in the Spider's Web came out in 2018, which was okay. There's also a Vertigo comic. I think they go through all of them. There are two parts for The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. And okay. Okay, so this is the last bit before the plot synopsis. I wanted to at least say about this story that I heard for a long time. So Larson actually spoke of an incident which he said occurred when he was 15 and he stood by as three men gang-raped an acquaintance of his named Lisbeth. And he unfortunately did nothing to help her and he was racked with guilt. Uh, he ended up coming to her and begging her forgiveness uh, which she actually refused to grant him. And it haunted him for years and in part inspired him to create, of course, a character named Lisbeth, who was also a rape survivor and uh, uh, an angel of vengeance for, for women who are attacked. So the veracity of the story has been questioned since his death after a colleague from Expo magazine reported to Rolling Stone that Larson had told him he had heard the story secondhand and retold it as his own. And then the murder of Katrina de Costa was also an inspiration when he wrote the book. <sighs> so anyways, I think that's a really interesting, if it's true, even if it's not, but if it's true, I can totally see like, yes, he experienced that he didn't do something or he didn't step in when he should have. And, and this is the result of that where he could kind of go back in time and, and do what he should have done but didn't. With the exception of the fictional Hedestad, the novel takes place in actual Swedish towns. 
The magazine Millennium in the books has characteristics similar to that of Larson's magazine Expo, such as its leftist socio-political leanings. It exposes Swedish Nazism and financial corruption and its financial difficulties. Anything that you may have found that you would add? No. Okay. Not at the moment. It's interesting how... This became kind of the, the the conflict between like the weirdness of how this became like mm-hmm. an intellectual property because of its success and stuff. And I was looking at some of the notes and the novel and the translation that the translator actually asked his name to be taken off. He's given the pseudonym uh, Reg Kligen, if I'm reading that correctly, because they he said that they uh, that the one of the editors uh, of the British uh, publishing house that that published it uh needlessly pretty fied the english translation so you're, and, and it is he is credited under the pseudonym mm-hmm. reg keeland keeland in in the novel and um that they changed the title it for the american even though that was against uh larson's wishes and apparently in the translation the size of dragon's tattoo it says from a large piece covering her entire back to a small shoulder tattoo which Maybe it's because I remember seeing some of the comic book adaptations, and I do think I distinctly remember seeing a giant dragon tattoo. So maybe that's what I was picturing the entire Mm -hmm. time I was reading this book. So that maybe I just kind of glossed over how it was described, and I just pictured a (laughs) huge dragon tattoo on her back. In the Fincher, it is also large, but I think in the in the Swedish version, it's smaller. But it's been a while since I've seen the New Mirror Pace on there. Uh, Yeah. Yeah, that's that's it out of me. So. Indeed, on to the plot synopsis. Okay, I was just seeing how long it is. Oh, okay. Henrik Wanger, the retired CEO of the Wanger Corporation, receives an anonymous dried wildflower in a picture frame on his birthday, November 1st, for 36 years. He has all the frames displayed on a wall in his house. Every year, he phones his friend, a retired detective, who shares his birthday and his age and tells him about the latest flower. They can only wonder who sent it and why, and also it's believed it's gaslighting. In December 2002, Mikhail Blomqvist, publisher of the Swedish political magazine Millennium, loses a libel case involving allegations about billionaire industrialist Hans-Erik Wennerström. Blomquist is sentenced to three months deferred in a minimum security prison, and the fines and damages empty his life savings. Even worse, his prestigious reputation as a hard-hitting investigative journalist is in shreds. At Christmas, he is invited to meet Henrik Wanger, patriarch of a declining but still powerful family business, unaware that Wanger has checked into his personal and professional history. The investigation of Blomquist's life has been carried out thoroughly, if not entirely legally, by Elizabeth Salander, a brilliant but aloof railfin goth researcher and computer hacker aged 24 who masks a deeply troubled past in black lipstick and bad manners. (laughs) With nothing better to do, Blomquist says goodbye to his co-founder, editor, and longtime lover, the beautiful and well-educated and married they are Swedes, they shoot. What? <laughs> Who typed this? Who typed this? Okay, I don't. Do you need me to? Do no, you need to no, pick it up no, from here? But do you um... see what that says? Okay. 
and Mary, they are Swedes. They share. They share. Oh my gosh. Okay. Upper class Erica Berger and heads off to the remote fictional North Swedish region of Hedestad. In his mansion on Hedeby or Hedeby Island, Vanger shows Blomquist's wall framed wildflowers. Until she was 16 years old, he explains, this was something his beloved niece Harriet had given him every year until she vanished at 16, and no one has seen her since. That's because she's part of that cult from <gasps> uh, Midsummer now. It could be. She could have been the... <laughs> it's the wildflowers. <laughs> the Mayflower, the May Queen. She could have been the May Queen. The May Queen. We're never going to get through the synopsis. So I know. Okay, Vonger promises to provide Blomquist with damning evidence against Vanistrom in return for discovering what happened to Harriet, whose disappearance has never been solved. She was last seen in 1966 during the annual family business gathering at the Vanger estate on the island, the same day that a massive traffic accident on the only bridge to the island temporarily cut off all contact from the mainland. Extensive searches through woods and water around the island, begun that very night by the same then-young detective who checks in each birthday, ruled out natural accidents. Her body was never found. Vanger, plagued all his life by her disappearance, has concluded that she was murdered by someone who knew her well enough to keep torturing him with these gifts. This points to his viciously factionalized family, three fanatical Swedish Nazis, one of whom still lives on the family compound, Vanger's brother Gottfried, now long dead, but while he lived, a drunk and philanderer. His miserable wife, Isabella, also on the island, such a terrible mother that Vanger took custody of Harriet and Martin when they were still children. Only Harriet's brother, Vanger's nephew, Martin, is a reasonable man whom his uncle has entrusted as Vanger Corp CEO. Intrigued, Blomquist stays on the island researching this family, pouring through cartons of material from field investigations, hoping to find anything new to Harriet's disappearance, which has, in fact, been investigated exhaustively in the previous decade. Z. Cecilia, another cousin, conveniently pretty, <laughs> conveniently pretty, oh my gosh, drops by for a tumble, oh boy, and some... Whoa! Sex I don't know where position. I got this. I don't know where Cue I got this. Careless whisper saxophone. It's sex position. Sex position, yeah. Drops by for a Suddenly we're in a sex Skinamax position. movie from 1990. Oh, it seems like it. But otherwise, this guy does get around. Sex like, he must be super good looking, I have to say. But otherwise, Blomquist is alone on this freezing, isolated place. But he does it that cat. Meanwhile, Salander's state-appointed legal guardian, Holger Palmgren, suffers a stroke. He's replaced by Nils Bjurman, who takes over control of her own earnings and extorts sexual acts from Salander before allowing her to have that money. The first time Salander asks for money, it's oral sex. The second time Salander asks for money, he handcuffs her to his bed as she screams in protest and, vi well, I guess I did say the, the warning at the beginning, but he violently, anally rapes her. Secretly recording this second episode because she didn't think it was going to get that bad, Salander takes her revenge, showing him the recording of his torture of her and explaining she will ruin him by public disclosure of this tape unless he gives her full control over her life and finances. She then uses a tattoo machine to brand him as a, quote, sexist pig and a, quote, rapist. On Hedeby Island, Blomquist 
stumbles on a key piece of evidence, a series of photographs taken of Harriet at a village parade shortly before she disappeared. These show her reacting with discomfort to something she sees. They also show a random woman standing next to Harriet, taking pictures of what might have frightened Harriet across the street. Blomquist tracks down this woman and is able to see the resulting photograph, which depicts a young man, but is too indistinct to provide further clues. Blomquist also discovers a set of names and five-digit numbers, believed to be old telephone numbers in Harriet's journal. However, his daughter, Pernilla, identifies them as verses from the Book of Leviticus, which describe gruesome ritual murders of women as punishment for violating ancient sexual taboos. Blomquist correlates one of them with the grotesque murder of a Vanger Corporation secretary in 1949, in which he was mutilated in a manner similar to a Bible verse, and realizes that he may be on the trail of an old serial killer. Vanger's lawyers suggest Salander as a research assistant, and a new partnership was born. Blomquist realizes that Salander hacked into his computer for the initial report that she had made on him, and, impressed rather than offended by her remarkable skills at learning everything about him, asks for her help with the investigation. The two eventually become lovers, of course. Meanwhile, Salander uncovers the remaining four murders corresponding to the Bible quotes in Harriet's journal, as well as several more that fit the profile. However, they realize this is more than just an old cold case when a local cat is left horribly murdered, its limbs placed in the shape of a swastika on their doorstep, and Blomquist is shot at from a distance during an afternoon jog. Convinced that there must be a connection between the murders and the Vanger family, Salander searches through the Vanger Corporation archives. She notices that all the murders occurred in locations where the corporation did business. She learns that Gottfried Vanger, the father of Martin and Harriet, was in town on Vanger business at that time that every murder occurred, except for the final one, which took place after Gottfried was confirmed deceased. While Sounder continues to hunt through the archives, Blomquist identifies the young man in the photograph by matching the patch on the blazer he's wearing to the uniform of boys at Martin Vanger's prep school. <gasps> Before he can do anything, Martin takes Blomquist prisoner in a secret torture chamber in his basement. Revealing that Gottfried made him watch the ritual rapes and murders of women on their business travels, he also tells him that Gottfried sexually abused him. Martin considered uh, this incest his duty. Following Gottfried's death, Martin continued murdering women, but abandoned the gory crime scenes with their desecration of women's bodies along the ancient biblical passages, which motivated his father, and simply dropped their bodies in the sea. Martin questions Blomquist about what he has discovered about Harriet, and Blomquist realizes that Martin did not murder his sister. Martin attempts to torture Blomquist to death, but Salander, who had made the connection with Martin independently, arrives and attacks him with a golf club. Wounded, Martin flees by car, pursued by Salander on her motorcycle. Martin suicidally smashes headlong into an oncoming truck. His car explodes, and Martin dies in the conflagration while Sounder drives past the accident. Though many baffling old murder cases have now been solved, Harriet's whereabouts remain a mystery. Cecilia's sister Anita, once Harriet's closest friend, now lives in London and is the only relative who might know something about Harriet's fate. When she tells them nothing, Blomquist and Sounder tap her phone and learn that Harriet is still alive and living under Anita's name in Australia. When Blomquist flies there to meet her, Harriet tells him the truth about her disappearance. Her father 
Gottfried had begun repeatedly raping her at 14. She killed him in self-defense, fleeing him in a drunken rage, but this merely resulted in Martin taking over his father's pattern of rape. He had also witnessed Gottfried's death, thus silencing Harriet into enduring the incest. Harriet found some peace when Martin was sent away to preparatory school, but he returned the day of her disappearance as captured by the photos. Harriet realized she would never be free of him unless she ran away, so she found a place to hide during the traffic accident on the bridge. Anita smuggled her to the mainland the next morning and gave Harriet her own passport, giving her cousin a new safe identity. Blomquist persuades Harriet to return to Sweden, where she reunite, reunites with Henrik. Meanwhile, Salander's mother, a woman severely brain damaged by her husband's spousal abuse, dies suddenly, and Blomquist goes with Salander to this lonely funeral. Ooh, we're almost done. Blomquist learns that the evidence against Vanderstrom that Wenger promised him is useless due to the statute of limitations. And Wenger knew this. However, betrayal. However, Salander hacked Vennerstrom's computer in December and discovered that his crime went far beyond what Blomquist had been attempting to document. Using her evidence, Blomquist puts an expose in Millennium and publishes a massive book, a year after the guilt verdict, which ruins Vennerstrom and restores Millennium's tattered reputation. Salander, using her hacking skills and traveling to Zurich disguised as a wealthy heiress under two fake identities, succeeds in stealing some 2.6 billion Swedish krona, which is about 260 million U.S. dollars, from Vennerstrom's secret offshore bank accounts. Amongst family holiday gatherings, Blomquist and Salander managed to slip away to spend a romantic Christmas night together in his cabin. Salander realizes, much to her confusion and probably dismay, that she is in love with Blomquist, something that has never happened to her before. She heads for Blomquist's apartment and intending to declare her love for him and give him a wonderful Christmas present, which involves Elvis. But when she sees him outside with Erica Berger, his longtime lover and founding partner of Millennium, of course, their body language of their lifelong affection is unmistakable and Salander's fantasy is shattered. She throws the present into a dumpster and heads home in the snow. As a postscript, Sounder continues to monitor Venner's throne, and after six months, anonymously informing a lawyer in Miami of his whereabouts, Four days later, the body of Wennerstrom is found in Marbella, Spain, shot three times in the head, presumably by the drug cartels whose money vanished when Salander emptied his accounts. Without that uh, postscript, I will say that what she's doing is kind of like a head-scratcher, so that was a necessary little coda. Mm. Oh, boy, wow, wow, wow. Okay, so, Tom, did mm. you like this novel? I did like this novel. I was a little confused at the beginning because I knew of Lisbeth Salander as a character and I thought she was going to be the main character of the book. So I was actually kind of surprised when it was this other guy. <laughs> no, I really, I was like, where the hell is this? No, no, no. Like, yeah. I, that, you know, that makes sense. Because all of the media that I had seen was centered around her and the book is called The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo and I knew that was her. So I was like, oh, and it, so I was expecting her and no. It is a bit tropey in places with the serial killer stuff and, and Elizabeth herself. Mikhail or Michael is a bit of a Gary Stu. Um, 
but I did really enjoy this. It like it once the thing picked up, like I was intrigued by the um, by the mystery, the, the the disappearance of Harriet mystery from like mm-hmm. the moment. And I actually was pretty intrigued by the whole Vennerstrom thing and the corporate intrigue and like what what is it about this guy that he's able to keep himself so like clean and and everything. So that had me going. And then once it started to pick up, it like flew. So. Yeah, I would agree. I think I I stumble a bit with the beginning and the corporate and financial intrigue just when they went on for a little bit about all the money that was changing hands mm-hmm. and like the investment and the loans and everything. But once I get past that, his story of how basically he got in himself in trouble. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it just goes really quickly. And then I'm waiting until Elizabeth and Mikhail finally meet and then once they finally meet like then it really accelerates because you know this dynamic duo is is finally together so i also enjoy it yeah obviously you know there are times that it's hard to read but overall story-wise i i like it and um yeah probably the grittiest crime novel i've read i suppose Mm -hmm. yeah yeah especially since you're you're under you're not really under any impression that there is a serial killer anywhere, you know, um, yeah. perhaps something regarding the, the flowers at the very, very beginning of the book might tip you off that there's something regarding a serial killer because it just sounds very calling guard. But at the same time, there's nothing in the novel that suggests that this is like a Thomas Harris novel, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. And there's so many like disparate pieces mm-hmm. like these, you know, he's looking through everything and he finds these weird stuff and you're like, I don't know how that works out. But I think Larson is really intelligent in that every piece, like he had a purpose for every piece mm-hmm. that is found and it all works really well together. So I think lots of Chekhov's guns yeah. were firing yeah. bang, bang, bang. And they all hit their targets yeah. as far as I'm concerned. I don't know if you you disagree that there was something that maybe didn't. Uh, no, I think it did. And I, the other thing I was thinking of is like, you know, I'm not I, I haven't I haven't read a a ton of detective novels. But I and but, you know, between that and reading comic books that are detective related, the whole idea of like you find one clue or you solve one piece of the puzzle and all of a sudden like all these other things start to match line up with it in a ways you didn't realize. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, you, you, it's like, yeah, it's like you got that one piece and all of a sudden, like there's like five other things in front of you. You're like, Oh my gosh, like I unlocked like five doors at once. And that felt very realistic to me. Like, you know, he, he hits his stride with the investigation at one point. That's very much like you can see things starting to fall into place. And when he discovers, you know, he starts to make the connections with, the Bible verses and the, and the whole killings are like, you know, and, and so that starts to fall into place. And yeah, so I felt it felt most for the most part, the investigation part felt organic to me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. I mean, just hopping off of mystery there. Do, do you think that tempo wise and pacing wise, it was done well? And then with the reveal of Martin being Martin slash Gottfried, but Martin being more the, the contemporary killer. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Were you surprised about that? And then I think we already talked about clues. But overall, like, do you think that the mystery is handled well? I think it was. He, I liked his pacing. He didn't feel that he had to have everything happen on the same night. Like, we were given a. I think he's given a year to solve the 
case, right? When when he's hired. Yeah. So slash write the memoir. Slash write the memoir. And yeah. so I think having with Larson setting that up, it allowed him to create a pace that seems um a little more natural than say, oh, where this is all taking place over the course of a weekend or something like that, you know? So he, he has a, a way of, by using the eccentric billionaire character, that trope of getting our main character onto this isolated environment that, you know, it's like Swedish cozy mystery with really depraved people, but he, he sets up that world really nicely. You know, he's got like the little cafe or coffee shop where he meets, you know, goes to get whatever in the morning and he does get to know a couple of the people in town he certainly gets to know the one um the one relative because uh you know but yeah i I thought it was very well paced and he takes his time and he realizes how much time it's going to take him to investigate so it's not like he gets everything within the you know it's not like an hour tv show episode where they get everything within that first you know 20 minutes you know yeah and the novel is over. I mean, your copy looks slightly different than me, but mine was a bit squatter. So it was about it was over six hundred pages. Mine was, um, I guess they call it the trade paperback uh, edition, where it's the because there's the mass market paperback. I believe is the shorter squatter one that tends to be thicker. I believe the trade paperback is the paperback version of what you usually see in a hardcover. Very very similar in terms of um, in terms of size and format. And mine was five hundred and ninety. Okay, so yeah, close. So he has he has room to play yeah. with, which I think could go either way, right? It could have been like just too slow of a burn, mm-hmm. and we're just losing track of it, and it's not working out well. But I think it does really work well how he does it, and it also it almost mimics what's going on in the novel because Mikhail is given all of this material, yeah. like boxes upon boxes of stuff, and so you can kind of feel it like as he's going through everything, like we're going through it with him. And so pieces or details that he's not catching. And then, of course, when the photograph, like once that happens, I think things start to to speed up. So it's almost like a really wonderful, I don't know, symphonic piece. And then there are moments of like acceleration when there are like important Mm -hmm. clues. And and I think Larson does really well plotting and, and yeah, tempo wise. Yeah, for sure. So you were led astray. You thought this was Elizabeth (laughs) Salander novel. I think is this, I mean, yeah, her name's on the front, you know, well, I mean, girl with the dragon tattoo, right? It's not the man who owned Millennium, even though it's like the Millennium series. But I think, like I said, if, if all you're familiar with, you're like me and all you're familiar with at this point, you never read the book, but you're familiar with all of the marketing that was centered around the various adaptations, whether it be movie or comic book, Elizabeth Salander's the main image. Yeah. So, yeah. So then my question is, and this is a bit of a, it's a poor question, but I, I, I'm leaving it as is so we can have a good discussion. Who do you, cons- or whom, whom do you consider the novel's protagonist, Elizabeth or Mikhail and why? I think they both have their own, their protagonists of their own stories in here. Because Elizabeth, I will keep wanting to say Elizabeth, Elizabeth. <laughs> has her own storyline with her um the trust under which she gets her money her mother the the the, the real just disgusting pig who was her uh, yeah, uh conservator yeah. and her falling for mikhail mikhail and and all that 
that being said of the main plot of the novel, she's not the protagonist. She's a partner. And, and he is Blomqvist is the, is the main character of the book because the bulk of the action is happening to him. Yeah. I would say both. Honestly, I mm-hmm. think it's, it's, it's a, it's a cheap answer, but uh, I think it's possible to have a novel or a Sears. And I mean, I'm coming off of, you know, loving the last of us part two, having a duo protagonist. Gotcha. I think that they are, I totally agree with you. They've got these two separate stories like that they're running parallel. And then all of a sudden they start to intersect. And I think there are little threads that are starting to touch each other in the beginning before that intersection. Uh-huh. But I think it's, they are both our leads. And as the series continues, it starts to sway more towards Lisbeth. But I think that these two are, they're so, different from each other but there are some similarities as well that they just yeah well this should be another question of course but so that's my answer is yeah i think both of them are really do you buy into their relationship so i'll just go off of and and what are your thoughts on this and and not only um you know of course their sexual relationship but which is consented of course but you know friends and and he has a good quote about trust and and that he really wants trust between friendship and he's looking for friendship beyond their sexual relationship but do you buy in and and then thoughts on that i really like their friendship i really like their partnership it bugged me when they started sleeping together i could i it didn't ruin the novel for me i came to accept that and that became part of their dynamic i just kept thinking like was it necessary Hmm. i guess it's in character for both of them because (laughs) <laughs> she she has, um, as we've seen, a very sort of, I don't know if warped is the right word, but warped sense of sex and love and stuff because of her past trauma. And he seems to just get into bed with anybody. He does. He gets, he's like, he's got, what's her face, Erica. And then he's, he's got, yeah, like, um, okay, yeah. Stig, I see what you did there, but. Stig. But yeah, but like, had they not had the sexual relationship, I think the relationship would have been just as good, if not even better. I, I like the, I don't know, maybe I just, maybe I'm just me, maybe it's just me who I'm like, I like the idea of having a very, very close partner of another gender who you may, or even the same, like a close partner who you could conceivably have a romantic or sexual relationship with, but the two of you don't, I I don't know. I just, I've always liked that dynamic in characters and, and people. Um, so that, I think that would have been interesting to explore and the tension between them might've been interesting to explore. That being said, them having sex through the back half of the novel didn't really, um, ruin it for me. I still really, yeah, do you ship them together? Would you say? Not really. Okay. I, I just there's a the friendship and the partnership were like way more interesting to me than the sex. Yeah, I agree with you there. Yeah, I do have a question about friendship, which I think I'll, I'll get to afterwards. But yeah, I think it's so interesting to see how long it takes Elizabeth to warm up to making. Mm-hmm. Because I think right off the bat, she doesn't trust him. And, you know, she's recently come off of a really bad experience with a man. And he kind of just, like, pushes his way into her her living yeah. space and, and doesn't really ask permission for, like, cleaning up and things well, like that. Well, she's a slob, then... first of all. 
Good God. It does sound like it. Months, weeks worth of pizza boxes, I think, was something like that. Yeah. And then he has every right to be really upset that she invaded his privacy. And I think he's, like, moderately upset but also, like, amused and also knows that she's gifted so that he she can really help him out so the development of that and and developing trust and seeing her walls come down because i i think quite rightly she has these walls to protect her given we don't even know half of the stuff from this first novel of what she's gone through with all her family stuff you don't really know but just know that it's bad and then if we just look at her guardian her new guardian that's terrible like that's enough so to watch those go down and if you're behind mikhail you want those walls to come down and have them be friends and it's i think no other case would really work as well if it was just a financial case i don't think she would be as emotionally invested in it but because it's something that really strikes her you know these women who are being Mm -hmm. uh, victimized and and attacked and everything like she's all gonna go for it it's weird like the first sex scene is really weird because she comes on to him pretty hard and he's like this is not a good idea which is interesting because you wonder how much consent there really was on his side um, that just that people that that work together and of course she spots the fallacy in that argument because he works with Erica and, and they've had a sexual relationship for years so it doesn't work out as, out as well but it does seem you're right that she has this particular view that sex is just sex it's like an activity like walking on the street it's kind of that thing and he may treat it differently but I feel like I don't know he's just like this I just this sexy man I guess all these women like fall at his feet I mean Cecilia that was the first time she met him as like they as my synopsis said they took a tumble so I guess they're kind of able to to meet in the middle so in the beginning I, I was also I think turned off by this but as it progresses as emotion and feelings get involved I'm totally on board from it and and I'm somewhat heartbroken at the end where like she sees them she's like oh well That'll never be me. And then throws the present in the trash. That always gets me. But, yeah, it's such a fun partnership and a fun friendship. One of my favorites, I think, in in literature or literary fiction. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So I'll move on then to, to friendship. Mikhail tells Lisbeth that to him, friendship requires mutual respect and trust. And by those standards, who in this novel do you believe to be a good friend? And I, I did mention a couple. I said Mikhail and Anita. We could throw out other people like Erica, I think, who really struggles in this novel with what she believes Mikhail should be doing and what he's actually doing. Who is a good friend in this particular novel? Ooh, that's a tough one because like, I, I, liked, I liked the point you made about Erica because she is – looking out for his best interest, but she's also looking out for other people because she's, you know, he leaves the millennium and makes her the editor and even does it at the end again, too, when they have the expose on Vennerstrom and he's like, look, this is what's going to happen. You're going to lay, I'm going to lay low and write this book. You're going to be the editor. Um, so he puts a, I think he, he demonstrates quite a bit that he is a good friend by his own definition of it. He does things that where he does look out, yes, for himself, but also for other people. You know, I think he genuinely cares about Erica and I think he genuinely cares about Lisbeth. I think Lisbeth 
needs to learn a little bit more. Um, there are parts where I think he gets a little too lectury toward her, um, as if he's chiding her. And that's, I think, where it gets a little squeaky marine. But, um, but yeah, and I think she, I think there are times though where she, she does demonstrate, um, she certainly has a very strong sense of allegiance. I think that he's one of the first people who she could probably consider a friend. Um, mm. because the other people in her life we see, uh, aside from like anonymous hacker buddies, <laughs> we see his, her mother who is, who is, um, really i thought it was alzheimer's I, I i didn't pick up on the whole brain damage from uh from the abuse of her husband but even that is even worse and helps show some of elizabeth's motivations or at least how deep her trauma runs so she's out of it you've got um what's that pig's name you mean her guardian? yeah nils, nils yeah yeah you got him who is you know who is who is a rapist and then you have um the person that really wasn't i don't think really mentioned in the synopsis her boss at the security agency where she freelances oh, yeah. who's kind of like yeah. like a like he adores her mm-hmm. not in the sexual sort of way in a, almost like a fatherly sort of way he has like a lot of her interest at heart and and he sometimes has a problem like really figuring out how to go about doing that because she doesn't necessarily need protection, but he really cares about her and he adores her. I really liked that relationship because I liked him as a character. He has this sort of Perry white aspect to him. And you were just kind of like, I hope, I hope that they, you know, they appreciate each other because um, it's a really good relationship. Yeah. In a way that she didn't have a father. Dragon, Dragon yeah. Armand. And she didn't have a father who was, you know, her father beat her, beat her mother. So the father figure here is uh, important. And, and I think he's kind of filling that role a little bit. And I find it I find it sweet in some places. Which, you know, just to hop off of that before I get back to, to my thoughts about this friendship. Do you feel like even though you said Mikhail was lecturing her, do you think that he was also somewhat trying to teach her in the way of a father? A little bit. Or an older brother, like the, the age difference between them, because I think he's in his 40s. Am I right? Yeah, there is an age. Yeah, there's yeah. a significant age difference between the two of them. So he is kind of doing that. Yeah, we could talk about Elizabeth and her character and what she's like, and who she is, I guess, in a little bit. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with all you have to say. I will only add with Anita mm-hmm. because of what she did not only you know i think on the surface like obviously obviously she saved harriet's life yeah. in multiple ways she got her out of there out of that bad situation you know if she hadn't gotten out she probably would have you know been a i i don't know a sex slave for the rest of her life to her brother if she didn't get out then but then also anita as as what Harriet believes, we see this in the end with her exposition, Anita potentially sacrificed marriage for Harriet because yeah. if that were to happen, like she would have had to reclaim that identity and she couldn't do it. Mm-hmm. So Harriet believes that Anita, you know, remains single for her. And I feel like such a – I mean, she's probably had like romances and, and loves and everything, but to – 
not settle down if that was something that she really craved because she wants to protect you know this this other woman i think really shows a great deal yeah no you're right so i i would just mention her but i yeah i think there are a lot of good friendships around i'm trying to see if there is anyone else that i think i guess we didn't see too much here we see it later on but her original guardian Holgren, mm-hmm. I believe, Palmgren. She visits him a lot, and she cares for yeah. him. So I think, oh, and yeah, we saw a lot of what he, he does for her, and he really trusted her and gave her control of her accounts and everything. So, uh, yeah, I think there are really interesting friendships that, on the, you know, if you were to look, you'd be like, this is weird, I don't understand it. But looking beneath, you know, the, the outward, you can see like, oh, wow, this is actually really, there's a lot of depth here. Yeah. For sure. And I guess to a certain extent, Mikhail really shows his depth of friendship towards Elizabeth because he doesn't call the cops mm-hmm. and and do all that stuff, which put his journalistic integrity yeah. on the line. But he, he, he trusts her. Yeah, he does. Even though, yeah, he really did not like that at all. Uh, he doesn't even want to talk about mm-hmm. what happened. But anyways, yeah, let's let's do this. Let's do Lizbeth talking about her. Woo! Okay. <laughs> there are lots of things going on. Just what do you think of her as a character? I think let's start with that. Because, uh, well, I'm just going to throw out that she is a unique character, in my opinion. Someone that I've not really seen before. So, yeah, thoughts out of her as a literary heroine. Can we call her that? <laughs> uh, I think he took what was a tired trope and made something really good out of it. Because, like, at a glance, she's like every hard-edged hacker chick from a late 90s movie or TV show. You know, she's got there's there's like there's some sort of metal esque soundtrack. She's there's lots of shots of her tapping on keys. And, you know, I am thinking of like Angelina Jolie in that really crappy mid 90s movies. Hacker hackers. Remember that one? You know, just like he, he took that trope and he he made a character who was way more three dimensional than um mm. than most of those types of characters tend to be their their cookie cutter um so i give him a lot of credit for that she's quite unique <laughs> yeah <sighs> yes hello are you trying to work up what you want to say well obviously she is neurodivergent <laughs> she is neurodivergent i was trying to get is, my best she feels shame out Oh, I say, obvi- well, obviously, yeah, and and she feels shame towards it, yeah, which I I find really interesting. Like now, I don't know, like anyone who has a photographic memory, I think it'd be like astounding. But it's just interesting. She just feels like she, which I think goes to show. Sorry, there are multiple thoughts, so they're yeah. coming now here. I think goes to show that she didn't have a good upbringing. Like if there was no love. Wherever she was, which I know since I've read everything, and just like everything about her is bad. So she leans into it to a certain extent, I think, with her appearance and just like really trying to push people away. And then, yeah, this thing that makes her different obviously is bad until someone tells her, actually, no, that's a really awesome and beautiful thing. Yeah, she's completely unique. I think literary heroine for me. You know, I like my clean cut heroines like Jane Eyre. I like also my heroines that have some flaws to them, but they're super strong, like Scarlett O'Hara. And this one is just like, she's got, she's got some major baggage with her, some major trauma, (laughs) really edgy, badass, 
And she's just able to pick herself up and, you know, go against the grain and fight people that are way bigger than her and take them down. I think, yeah, she's just really capable. But looking at her, I think she's one of those people that you look at her and you completely underestimate her. And to your your devastation. But (laughs) certainly the edgiest literary heroine that that I can get behind. For sure. And and someone that you could potentially consider. Well, this is a question. Would you consider her an anti-hero? Just because vengeance is something that she's not all about vengeance, but it's not something she's going to shy away from. And it's something that she'll she'll pick up throughout the course of, of all these novels. So is she an anti-hero? I don't know, because I think of anti-heroes and I think like the Punisher Mm-hmm. or Deathstroke. That's a whole other conversation that I've had with Donovan already. So <laughs> maybe on some level, although she, she is, she definitely has a vigilante streak in her. And I will say that, you know, there's, yeah. there's that aspect of it. And she, she deliberately works for herself um, sometimes by herself or she's working with somebody. It's, it's, it's all her. She's running the show. And um, she works, she skirts the law, you know, um, to to enact that vengeance. I don't know if anti, I may be, but then again, I don't know if my, if my version, if my vision of the definition of anti-hero is, is uh, completely accurate. What do you think? Yeah, it's, it's a tough phrase. Yeah. You're, you're saying Punisher and I think Deadpool. (laughs) Yeah. I'm not a fan of Deadpool. (laughs) You know, like these kind of people. I, I feel like with anti-heroes, a lot of times they may not have a steadfast or a consistent allegiance to mm-hmm. something. Like they could switch. And it's that unknown that kind of makes you concerned for for aligning yourself with them. Mm-hmm. And I think that she's anti-hero in terms of, as you said, she is not always on the up and up. Like everything she did with Venerstrom's finances was Ugh, bad. I love that. She basically had him killed because <laughs> the cartels went after him. And then what she did to uh, Nils Bierman was also pretty bad. <laughs> but he had it coming. Uh, but Come you on. know, oh 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 no, I got you, I got you. I'm just saying, you know, it was she took the law in her own hands. But she's always going to be on the side of, I'll say, like, righteousness. That it's, yeah, if she's going to protect people, protect others, that's going to be Elizabeth. So I think her allegiance will never change. So anti-hero in terms of law, but I think, like, hero-hero and in, in, yeah, in the sense of justice and everything. Mm-hmm. She's, like, a really dark Batman. <laughs> no, there's, there are, there are, um... There are bat family aspects to her. That's why I brought up the vigilante notation, you know? Yeah. She's not as much of a jerk as Batman, but <gasps> yeah, I could see, like, there. there's a little bit of Kate Kane that kind of goes along. I think she's, Elizabeth's obviously way more extreme than Batwoman, but, but you yeah. know, I, I see a little bit of Kate uh, uh, a little bit of similarity between her and Kate Kane, for instance. Yeah, I can see that for sure. Yeah, someone who's not afraid to break bones. Yeah, yeah, basically. Yeah. <laughs> 
Some think, it's still on Elizabeth here, uh, that she is a quote-unquote perfect victim. Others find, because she's small, others find her intimidating, and Mikhail wonders if she may have Asperger's. So this is like, what, the third novel that we've had? Second like the last novel. four months. I guess so. Crazy. But the reader is allowed to see exactly how her mind works. So how do you see Lisbeth, and how do you think Lisbeth sees herself? Ooh, I, don't, I don't feel the authority to be able to diagnose her as far as where on the <laughs> spectrum she falls. I mean, sure. clearly... Is she an Oscar or is she a um... Christopher? <laughs> yeah. Oh, uh, you know she, the obsessiveness of it all and the precision suggests something. Where she she does not let go. Her tenacity. That's what I was getting at. Her tenacity. Yeah. She does not let go. That's what makes her such a great uh, detective too. Yeah. Um, and she is really good at working her way around problems, too. I think the the fixation aspect of things is something that um, something that suggests that particular uh, that you know, that may put her in the spectrum and things like that. But that's basically what we've gotten out of pop culture and such. Um, if you think about Christopher, yeah. you know, he would not let the thing with with the um, dog go. Um, even when his father mm-hmm. asked him to, he found ways around it, you know. Um, I'm not going to get into Oscar. Um, we, we, we've, we've got to really feel <laughs> He was obsessed about Dorian. Yeah, I guess. She's not of the very particular way, like the extreme way that Oscar is, not Oscar, where Christopher is with all the, the colors and the, and the, the sort mm-hmm. of, uh, things in his place. Cause, you know, she's, she is not, she is a slob. There's, there's a little bit of ADHD there too. But, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'm not, I really don't, I shouldn't be joking about these things, but at the same time, um, there's a, yeah, I, I would see that, but I kind of liked that Larson avoided like Michael, Mikhail wondering if she has Asperger's like that, I think is a natural reaction from that character. Yeah. Like he's been around this woman long enough. He's like, what's her deal? You know? And, and so he starts wondering like, is she, you know, does she? Um, and I think that's natural. I think anybody would have considered that or wondered about that at some point or another would lurk working with her long enough. Her boss talks about how she like would disappear for days at a time, you know, and, and work on the case and stuff like that. I don't think she sees herself, like you said, she has such a low opinion of herself because she's never been positively reinforced in that regard. So you can't really say that she sees herself in any of those definitions. And I think if they came up and it was suggested, she probably wouldn't say that she has anything because it was, it'd be a source of embarrassment for her because she's been brought up to believe that that is a deficiency, you know? Mm Um, yeah. But I do like how we get her mind working in a way that is just like we're allowed to figure it out or or consider it ourselves. And it does not mean that it is central to a the story or b whether or not we're supposed to like the character. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I feel like people throw out Asperger's as a way to try to explain why someone may not, quote unquote, act normal in social situations. I, I think so, I think that that Asperger's or ADHD, autism, other spectrum um, conditions. I don't even know if they're classified as disorders anymore. The language keeps changing. 
I think you're right. I think they, the lay people tend to throw those things around as diagnoses as ways to explain certain things um, incorrectly yeah. too. Yeah. So I don't necessarily, I mean, this is, we, we did this with Oscar too, that I didn't I saw him as like a strange kid, a quirky kid, but not necessarily any, just because the author didn't tell us and the author doesn't tell us here either. Yeah. You know, that's, something that Mikhail just drops kind of offhandedly. I'm surprised that Armansky doesn't, you know, have any sort of thoughts on that. But I, I would just say she's quirky and antisocial, <laughs> and, you know, but also really brilliant mm-hmm. and dealing with some trauma. Like, she's she's got a lot of baggage to, to work yeah. with. I think she's a really complicated character, but someone who, uh, to a certain extent... I think has honor, or at least she knows right and wrong. Yeah. But I think it's very black and white. Well, there are some yeah, and and yeah. you know, part of her attitude and part of the way she is, especially when she's going after these men who have wronged women in horrific ways, whether it be herself or somebody else, and then, um, you know, she goes after Venerstrom because of. I think her motivation for that is that you know this is her her the guy she's falling for. So she's going to help him. A lot of the motivation for that is informed by her past and her own trauma. Mm-hmm. So the anti-social nature of her life could also be informed by that as well. So I don't think it's all one answer here. Mm-hmm. You know, it is the, it's a, I, I don't like to use the cliche phrase, but there is a little bit of nature and there is a little bit of nurture here, perhaps, you know, I'm not going to say, well, yeah. obviously, obviously this is a nurture, like as, as if I know all these things, cause I don't, as if I was supposed to get this and didn't cause I don't, but I did wonder it. <laughs> did I have to sit there and explore it for the next 200, 300 pages? Not necessarily. I, we had a story to get through. And whether or not that's and him leaving the the official clear diagnosis, if you will, on the cutting room floor or never putting it on the table is not a does not affect anything about the novel for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is knowing that this is the first one of a series mm-hmm. and Larson knew that he had plans for 10. He doesn't want to drop everything. <clears throat> on us in the first yeah. novel about Lisbeth. And so it's, it's, I think he, he gives us enough to get an, uh, an okay, a clear ish mm-hmm. picture of Lisbeth, but not enough that we are like, Oh yeah, I know all this again when, when we're on book two yeah. or three or yeah. whatever. So, yeah. And then with the second one, I think I already answered answered it in regards to, you know, how does she see herself? I think not positively, mm-hmm. to, to be sure. Um, I think there are times that she is proud but not prideful. You know, like her hacking skills, she knows that she's pretty good about that. Yeah. I, I think that her sense of justice, I think that that is something that gives her motivation but yeah she does see herself potentially as a you know as a freak and then maybe looks it's a really interesting scene at the end it's sound it's weird to say but just her almost fascination with the the fake breasts that she gets (laughs) and how they like look and uh, she ends up keeping them and then you know this guy is like feeling her up in one of the bars and she was disguised yeah yeah she's uh, wearing this disguise for the listeners uh very yeah and like he couldn't tell the difference yeah so it's interesting 
I think that may give a clue into her self-image, I guess, or self-worth, at least um, image-wise. But it's interesting if you think about it in terms of the actresses that have played her, you know, Rooney Mara and Numi Rapace, if you look at them as Lisbeth, and then you pull it away, you're like, oh, yeah. So, you know, Lisbeth has the potential. I I think that Lisbeth is beautiful but she goes again she's sort of counter-cultural in how she dresses so like the image of that beauty is different and we wouldn't necessarily tend and say tend towards saying oh yeah she's pretty because we're kind of put off by everything that's going on but yeah i think she just has a low opinion of herself but again it comes from a not good home Okay, well, I think we've come to the point where we should and need to talk about, yeah, the sexual violence that is in this novel. And there are certainly some themes. We can see how they connect to to other themes. I guess, first and foremost, let's start here. Was the sexual violence within here necessary? Could this novel have worked without it? And I'll say, let's group them into two. Yeah. So the the sexual violence against yes. Lisbeth, was that necessary? Could the novel have worked without it? And then the sexual violence against all, all the victims of the, the Wenger men, um, both Gottfried and Martin, was that necessary? Could the novel have worked without it? So let's start there, and then we'll talk about depictions, because I think that's something that you and I have talked a bit about like the necessity of it and and what is its worth kind of in 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 terms of the the whole work oh this is tough because the stuff with harriet got very very twisted Mm. and very very dark in a way that was like i felt i i was i i mean if you don't feel uncomfortable reading that you know what the heck but um it was yeah. it was a little too much for me. Mm. It was it, it didn't completely take me out of the novel with the whole torture chamber dungeon thing, but it was a turn that I was like, oh, okay, because it did get a little serial killer cliche that all of a sudden it's all like S and M and and all this sort of like mm. sexual depravity alongside the the rather ritualistic killing had it not been all of this sex abuse and incest would that have worked maybe clearly there needs to be something that the entire family who knew about it is going to cover it up because more than it wasn't just the couple of those people who knew it with elizabeth i guess it tracks I'm really struggling to justify any of the rape in this book. And like, as a story point, I guess it kind of tracks considering how equal and opposite her reaction to the way she is raped by her conservator is. And it's a great revenge. She doesn't just, she doesn't cut his balls off or anything. She just tattoos like, you know, she really, really lets him have it in this sort of to the pain sort of way where like, you know, he can function as a man, but there's like, she's branded him, et cetera. It's, it's a really well done scene, but I don't know. I'm struggling to say whether or not the novel works without it. I, the second one is so intense. Yeah. That's almost the one that I feel like you could yeah. do without. 
I mean, there are the first one where um, he he forces her to what is it? Commit fellatio? Yeah. Is that what it's called? I think it sets the groundwork for okay. So this guy is going to take advantage of her because he, I guess, like that previous question we asked, he see feels like she's just a deranged person who can't take care of herself. And so he's going to get pleasure if she's asking for something like it's a quid pro quo yeah. situation. So it at least shows like the bad position she's in. And then in contrast, what her other guardian was like, who was a really loving. I, I think maybe with, with the relationship with the guardian, if there had been maybe one or two more meetings where he was clearly trying to groom her, it went, mm-hmm. I know that we didn't have a lot of space for it. It's already a long novel, but it, it went from zero to 60 very quickly with the two mm-hmm. of them. It seems to me he would have been a little more gentle the first time around. But I guess, you like you're saying, she was in and out of a psychiatric ward at one point. So knowing her history and knowing why she has the conservatorship, maybe he doesn't feel he has to groom her in any way, to use the phrase. So, yeah. So I'm kind of with you. And no one, yeah. And he has all the cards. Like, it's a really classic uh, dynamic because no one's going to believe her. He's got all these accolades and all that. And she's a crazy Um, woman. Yeah. So it's really interesting. So the second one is... I I wish it hadn't happened for many reasons. But I guess the main thing you can get out of is what or... What happens if you push Lisbeth mm-hmm. <laughs> to her limit and that she, I mean, she will take revenge out on you and it'll be eye for an eye situation because she did to him what he had done to her. Yeah. I feel like it wasn't really necessary. I mean, I feel like she could have, and that was her whole intention was to entrap him because she thought that he would ask again for the police. Mm-hmm. But he didn't it just like got way out of control so yeah i think that's all it it furthers character development to show like this is who this heroine is if you had any idea who it was before it's completely different but i i think there could have been some other way to do that out on the street with like a random stranger i don't know so that that one while i can argue of why it works i think that it you could take it away and it would be it'd be fine. We could get a sense of who Elizabeth is, that she's not going to be taken advantage of, and she'll get back yeah. to you. And you could do something with regard to Harriet that would have her need to be under serious threat, such serious threat that she has to do what she did anyway. Yeah. That That's the yeah. other half of that. It's like, if Harriet's not being abused, does she have, does she have enough of a motive to run away? And yeah. we just need to make sure that, you know, without it, you just have to give her enough of a motive to run away. Yeah. And we know that these people are extremists because of their Nazi ties. Yeah. And, of course, throw in the Bible and people can kind of go crazy with things. I mean, just look at the film seven. Mm. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. All those. I Harriet, yeah, Harriet's the worst. If I look at all of the women that they were able to track down, I feel like, well, really bad. <laughs> the whole scene is really bad. But if we take it out, what is that? What is the mystery then? What is, you know, the 
should they have just been murders and like remove the 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 sexual violence from mm-hmm. it but then i think about all the what would you call them frontis pieces or like the beginnings of each section yeah that gives lots of so i feel like there's this thread right it, it talks about all these little moments right before a certain section of the novel it it gives a fact about how how much of a percentage of women blank mm-hmm. so like are attacked by men sexually assaulted by men that sort of thing um multiple times and so like there's a theme of this of violence against women so it's all tied together so i feel like if you were to remove one piece of it so like the serial um rapes and murders the novel is sort of dismantled so it'd be a completely different novel is the only yeah but the harriet one is the where you could potentially maybe try to (laughs) change things a bit you'd also have to change it with martin Mm -hmm. but then the question is well how did martin get to where he was if not for that abuse that he sustained so a lot of it's like it's really hard because i think we could i think we could but everything's so interconnected, mm-hmm. which is both like the grotesque and the yeah. beauty of the whole thing of like how well it works together. I feel like it's possible. Yeah, I will say this: it earns its intensity. Like yeah. it's not this come this it, it this doesn't completely come out of left field, but at the same time it kind of does, and you it, you accept it a lot more than a novel that hadn't earned your trust in that way. Mm-hmm. It yeah, it earns its moments here. As sick as they are. I, yeah. Oh, for sure. I, I will say that I liked that, to a certain extent, uh, when Mikhail is taken down to the the sex torture yeah. room, it almost switches or flips like a stereotype on its head. Like you would imagine the woman would have gotten caught, that Elizabeth would have gotten caught. Yeah. But it's Mikhail, and Elizabeth is the one to the rescue, which I do really like. I think that's uh, that was really interesting. Yeah, that was that was really, really good. Do you think that this ages well, especially now with with the Me Too movement? <sighs> and I, I think people are taking, I say this, I think we're taking sexual assault and rape more seriously. I know that there are some weird things, federal stuff out there that don't go f- for the victim or the survivor. But for the let's just say that for the most part we're starting to better understand and better support. So do you think a novel like this with all the the sexual violence within it does it age well in in 2021? This was what 2004. Yeah, right? I mean I certainly enjoyed it, and I didn't have to I didn't have to necessarily look as pretend it was 2002 all over again. I think it does hold up very, very well. Um, there are little bits and pieces that would need changing. There'd be a certain amount of working social media into this particular storyline that would be necessary over the gotcha. course of it. It doesn't need to, I, I mean, I'm not being like, I'm not being one of those people who's like, well, you couldn't have, you know, we have cell phones now, so you wouldn't have that scene at a payphone in the movie or whatever. There is a certain aspect of the investigation that would take them online in, in much different ways now. Um, but even then, that's mm-hmm. that's like a little nitpick of a thing. It's like, okay, so so therefore you'd have her on Facebook or something, you know, or whatever. That still doesn't change the fact that the novel is very good. So I think it holds up fair. I think it holds up well, and I think it holds up. The violence is there, but the violence has consequences. Yeah. And I don't know. Like the characters are very well developed. She's a very well developed character. And she has agency 
Um, I would say she's a strong female protagonist. So I think it does hold up well under the scrutiny here. I would agree. I think even I would almost say that Larson was a bit ahead of his time in mm. terms of this type of female protagonist. <laughs> Twitter would in have which certain parts endures. of Twitter would have a, like a, a would lose their minds if this were published today. <laughs> <laughs> that might be true. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, to, I don't know if you've seen it. I I highly recommend Promising Young Woman, and just sort of reminds me of of that putting yourself in a situation, knowing that it could go wrongly, in order to punish and hopefully stop something bad from happening to the next girl. Yeah. So just the thoughts about that. And, and those statistics, I think, are really haunting, you know, with each section. And I think it, it really pulls your focus into what's important and what this novel might actually be about. <laughs> Even though you've got this crime thing, I, I think there's certainly some, some sub, I don't know, subliminal subtext. Mm-hmm. And again, if that story is true about Larson, we can kind of uh, see or understand why he would do that. Yeah. But just um yeah that women unfortunately are attacked frequently it's bad yeah so yeah and so we have someone here that is almost a wish fulfillment of of again angel of vengeance helping to protect or or take down some of these uh racist Mm -hmm. things any other um i guess topics or things you want to talk about in terms of the the sexual violence in this novel? not really um when it comes to like the the feminist aspects of this what do you think of of herica berger and her role in all of this because the because there, there are other there are there are a number yeah. of women characters in the novel some are more developed than others and that's just true of any character in the novel because like you have a uh, the 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 relative he's the, the one he sleeps with um on the island there and she's you know she's really cecilia. yeah there's not much cecilia does beyond that um you have besides ghost yeah, when he really needs to talk and to then her. you have um some of the other members of the family you know who uh who they all kind of prepare a certain role but erica is erica's a constant presence even when she's not there um i liked mm-hmm. her i i felt that she was She's a pragmatic character. She's looking out for him. She cares about him. I, she might not be like fully developed, three dimensional. Like I'm, I'm sure she's, you know. Um, but at the same time, um, I thought I thought she was also a strong female character in that just her position in society and that she's not subordinate to him. You know, in that regard, yeah. there's an equal she, footing of their yeah. relationship. For sure, yeah. She reminds me of a good version of Rebecca. Mm-hmm. You know, just someone in, you know who I guess has sexual freedom. She's got this understanding with her husband. You know, she's with Mikhail. Uh, she also allows Mikhail to do whatever um, he wants. And yeah, she is head of this paper. She makes decisions. Normally, it's a partnership with Mikhail, but she fully takes over at least temporarily when he's out and about, and she makes um, those decisions. So she, looking at her, you know, if you were to have like a a Fleer baseball card mm-hmm. of her, like you'd be like, yeah, that's that's certainly. I think that's like a model feminist right mm-hmm. there, just someone who's completely comfortable in her skin and she's capable and she's a powerful woman in the business world. And I love that interview she does with, I can't remember if it was, Oh, I know when it was, it was when it was announced that Vanger was going to be 
not really taking over, but like partnering yeah, yeah. with them. And the news anchor or whomever was conducting the interview was saying, you know, are is there going to be a conflict of interest? Are you not going to be investigating? And then she says, I don't, you know, I don't, what are you talking about? And he like has to clarify. And she says, so you're saying that, and then whisks off all these different companies that are owned by like conglomerates. Yeah. And then even the station she was on, I was like, that's a complete badass yeah. move. So just that, like in a nutshell, I think describes Erica. I I think there are a couple times that she gets it a little too attached to Mikhail. Like she really wants him to be with her. Like, why are you going yeah. off and gets angry and kind of pouts. Uh, so that might be like a cliche kind of woman thing. But overall, I would agree with you that I think she she's a pretty fleshed out uh, feminist or strong female character in this novel. Yeah. Well, and then her feelings and the way she feels about him as a lover and the way she cares is there to contrast or be a bit of a foil to the, to Elizabeth once she becomes Mikhail's other lover. This guy really gets around, you know, because Elizabeth doesn't necessarily understand. Not that she doesn't understand. She's not used to this. And so she is a little bit colder. She's a little bit less, you know, uh, cuddling up with him than uh, than Erica might be. So I think we get a little bit of a contrast between the, the way the two women approach their sexual relationships yeah and there's history between erica and and mikhail yeah. and i think that would be something that would potentially soften lisbeth not like soften soften but just you know like i think she would she would treat him and in relationships and sex differently if they had like, yeah. more time because he'd been with erica for but, at least a decade yeah yeah it was a very long long-standing yeah, relationship so, too and yeah you know, I felt a little bad for her at the end where she she's like, I'm falling in love threw with him and she threw. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, like, I don't know, I didn't I, like I said, I didn't want her to necessarily fall for him or reach that conclusion because she, I don't know if she knows what that's like. You know, it's just it, it was a weird wrinkle for me. But then again, the whole sexual relationship in the novel between the two of them is a weird wrinkle. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess we should be proud of her. I mean, a lot of women who have survived sexual assault have issues with intimacy afterwards. Mm -hmm. So Elizabeth is able to to work through that rather quickly, which is probably why maybe why her um, ideas of sex might not be completely. Oh, I don't know. Healthy. Yes. Let's go with that. Yeah. That's uh, a good point. Yeah. Oh boy. So several times in the novel, Mikhail's journalistic ethics are challenged. So do you consider him to be ethical? Is anyone in the novel truly honorable? And then I do want to, when I'm asking about Mikhail, um, specifically the fact that uh, Henrik says, or requests, I guess, Mikhail to not publish the Vanger story ever. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, he agrees with that. Uh, does that change your opinion on, on Mikhail? And then if we also talk about ethics or honor, Lisbeth and what she does with Venerstrom at the end. Uh, so just two things to keep in, in mind. Uh, Venerstrom had it coming. I like, <laughs> I love that whole scene of her in the bar, the wigs. It's very Sydney Bristow. Yeah, it's crazy. It is Sydney it's Bristow. Very Sydney Bristow. And I think that's why I like it. I he's an ethical journalist. He, the libel suit at the beginning wasn't his fault. He he 
got a tip from a friend that was an honest tip, but was then, as he was investigating, led down the wrong path and did not do his due diligence enough to cover his cover his butt as for libel. But I think his I think his head and his heart were in the right place and that he wasn't outwardly lying. Now, the second time around where he does suppress or doesn't even publish the 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 story about the Vangers, because it was the whole thing with Martin being a serial killer like that never gets out. I feel there's a sense of duty that he has to his employer who is paying him for that. So he is being honorable there. It's not honorable necessarily to the victims, although I think they come up with a way to tell the victims' families, right? I think yeah. they did reach out, yes. But in the grand scheme of things, the Vernerstrom the, the thing and, and what that can do and, and all of this is more important, even though he kind of gets screwed a little bit because the, the information is beyond the statute of limitations, it helps open things back up again. He gets what he wants at the end. And even that is a little bit like it skirts the line. He sits in that gray area just a little bit. And I think that's just a little bit of it was is of Lisbeth's uh, influence on him. I don't know if he would have done mm-hmm. that had he not uh, met her and worked with her. Yeah. I would overall say that he's an ethical journal journalist. Yeah. I mean, that's the point of Millennium is to really suss out suspicious activities within the financial world and, and keep people accountable, hold them accountable. And he calls them out and everything. But, yeah, I really feel for him. I feel for him because he, he publishing the memoir would need to include what went down with Gottfried, Martin, and Harriet, and they want to protect Harriet in particular, and so he's told not to publish it. And then also the whole police thing where he's not, they, like, never find out really what had happened mm-hmm. in the basement of horrors. Mm-hmm. So it's hard. Like, it, it it's as if he does lose some of his integrity, but it's, like, forced. <laughs> Because there are all these, like, ultimatums. He was really put in a bad spot, you know, between a rock and a hard place, (laughs) like poor Odysseus. So, you know, where do you go? Do you go Skilla or do you go the Caribidus? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, poor guy. So I think he may have. I mean, that just may be the repercussion that he does lose some of his his integrity. But nobody knows it except for himself, which you can tell, like, it really eats him up inside, I think, toward the last – tenth of the novel i don't even know where he doesn't want to talk about it and it's really hard for mm-hmm. him with lisbeth we talked about being on the side of the law i think she goes financially even though that i i i'm always okay with like some financial finagling yeah uh, i think she was able to divvy it up and give it to good places and she also had to pay um, mikhail back because she borrowed a large sum of money from him but, yeah, the murder thing, she might go a little bit too far, but then you think about, well, what did she do on this other end with Nils? I don't know. So, I guess she would say that was justice. Yep. She would say that was justice. So, is it ethical? Probably no. not. Oh, hell no. But I think honorable in, in terms of maybe what honor is in this world and for Liz. Uh-huh. Is anyone truly honorable? I don't know if anyone keeps their honor. Maybe no. Anita. Yeah. 
because she never told anyone about Harriet. She never married. She got Harriet out of that bad situation. Maybe. I, I liked that felt realistic to me as well. She hid Harriet until the and in the commotion of everything and just simply gave her her identity Mm -hmm. which again like they've come up with in movies and tv all these different ways in which people get new identities were on there on the lamb and it's like and i think about that i'm like how how did you how were you able to get the money for this and this is like the, this idea that there's all of these unless you're like equipped on the level of a you know an international spy you're not necessarily going to know how to get the heck out of a situation like that and how to change your identity so you go to the easiest thing which was switching places with your sister and mm-hmm. i i liked it, it it sounds very much like what two women like that age would have done so i liked how that was presented yeah, agreed. Okay, well, I think that's mm. it. So, Tom, is this required reading? And you know, if you like murder, mystery, detective, this sort of stuff, I would say yes. I just would have to put the same warning that you put up at the top of the episode, that it is not for everybody, and that you have to be able to handle some very, very graphic and depraved stuff. Yeah, for sure. Is there any lesson to be had? Like, if you did this to specifically look at sexual assault in literary format, do you think that this could be a model to use, or would you look at something else, like The Bluest Eye or something? i probably default more to Toni Morrison than I would to Stieg Larsson. Yeah, because that, that has... But that has a totally different outreach and stuff. I, I think I would hold this up, and this would be a good piece to criticize or sorry, critically examine the use of sexual assault, sexual violence and rape against both um, women and men in a way of, is this done right? Um, is there a better way to do this? You know, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I think, oof. yeah, be careful. I-, I won't censor you, but just be careful. Know your limitations. And I, I think it's required reading in the sense of really giving us a distinct literary heroine or anti-heroine, depending on what you think. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, a gritty crime novel that is also, uh, I would say, really smart and just likable characters. Uh, well, <laughs> I should clarify. Likable main characters, <laughs> not some of the side characters. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's, yeah. So I would say yes, but be careful. Okay. So we do have some feedback. We have one Facebook comment from from uh, Robert Ward. And uh, again, just uh, don't forget to email us, drop Facebook comments, etc. Um, we could always we always like getting those. So um, he says about World War Z that he watched the film the day before the episode actually dropped. He finally finished the audiobook in previous Friday. Uh, he said, I'm in agreement. The audiobook is the way to go, and the film is okay at best. I just love how the book focused on different accounts and used the stellar cast of voices. A coworker wanted to argue the film is good, but all I could give him was that it was okay if you enjoy the big name, big budget tentpole films, which I don't. Yeah, I mean, the, the film, like I said, it's, it's a PG 13 action flick with zombies, and as a piece of it's just a popcorn flick that you can just kind of half tune out for an hour and a half to two hours, or you just you want to just kind of not have to overthink and stuff like that. It's, it's a good flick, but it's 
it's not the World War Z that we wanted. So yes, that's our that is our feedback. So get yours to us, you know. Email us. Um, we get a lot of spam. Do we, <laughs> we get really? A lot of offer. Oh, we get so much. I think I just deleted it all. Let me uh, let me pull up the email account. We get this weird amount of spam. No idea. On I get a lot on Pop Culture Affidavit as well, but I don't get as much on my personal account, which is kind of nice. Um, here's some of the stuff that I recently, and th- we have a spam folder. We get the stuff for WordPress, of course, burial insurance, um, burial car insurance, debt settlements, your car's warranty, uh, ADT security systems, lawsuits. Wow. <laughs> it's just like we get the weirdest, weirdest freaking spam, I swear. And then, um, Let's see. Confirm your subscription to something. Um, ooh, Cindy is telling me that I don't have to be alone. <gasps> ooh, dating with rich women. Man, um, we've been missing out. Yeah, so that's that's what we get. Please send us some real email. <laughs> oh, gosh, there you go. <laughs> or a Facebook comment or something. Yeah, so that, oh, that, that I'll, I'll leave it that. Well, Tom. Besides all yep. the spam and the rich women you could be having, what will we be reading next month? Uh, okay, yeah, so we got a, we got a little bit of a special thing planned for next month. So as you guys know, I have a, a, a another podcast over here on Two True Freaks called yes. Pop Culture Affidavit. Yes, and um, for January, uh, we're going to do a little bit of a kind of a crossover. Um, you do not have to listen to both episodes in any particular order, but they do relate to one another. Over on Pop Culture Affidavit, Stella and I, will, Stella will be my guest. We will be talking mm-hmm. about the Amanda Bynes movie, She's the Man. Over on this show for our January episode, we will be talking about the source material for She's the Man, which is the play Twelfth Night by William Shakespeare. Sir William! So, yeah, so come back uh, next month for Twelfth Night, and until then... Thank you very much for listening and take care. And if you find a flashing neon sign of Elvis in a dumpster, pick it up, give it to Mikhail and say this came from your, you know, you're meant to be. You should find her and hopefully (laughs) you will reconnect a ship. (laughs) Got to bring the shipper stuff in. Yes, of course. And next next month's gonna be all about the shipping. All, so until then, triangles. Yeah. I think. Good night. Good night. Thanks for listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by Two True Freaks. That's Two True Freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com/slash Required Reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com. We will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcast. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening, and come back next month for our next episode.